Well, we are back in our worship series tonight. And again, I just switched it around for this week uh, because the passage that we went through in John this morning seemed to me more appropriate for communion. So we're back. And I've decided to give this a little bit better title than worship series. That is um, the truth in worship series, the truth in worship or about worship. Uh, so a little bit of a variety there, and we're in our second message tonight. We're going to be looking at multiple passages, and you can turn to our first passage tonight if you know where the Ten Commandments are located. We're going to be in the second of them, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, and we'll also be in Numbers after that, so you can mark that. But remember, as we started this last week, uh, a burden of mine that was impressed upon me many years ago through some mentors, even in seminary, was that people understand how important worship is to God. We all have an understanding that worship is needed, that we need to worship God. But in Christianity today, there is a great misunderstanding about what worship should be, what that means, and our obligation to God in worship. As we pointed out last week, there are many, many believers that think that really, as long as it's worship, that really I can do whatever I like best in worship and what pleases me, and it's still worship to God, so he should be happy with it because he wants me to be happy too, and it's just a wonderful agreement. Well, I hope you learned from last week that ultimately what's most important in worship is not what makes us happy or what pleases us, but ultimately it's what pleases God. And that's what God expects from us. It's one of the primary emphases throughout scriptures and one of God's central commands to his people. And yet so many times we misunderstand. Um, the primary then purpose of our worship should be to obey God and to please him in it rather than ourselves. Actually, and I don't think I mentioned this last week, but the, the word worship originally in English was and I, a type of word like worth-ship from the word worthy, that one is worth our worship. Even in the background for the word, this uh, um, idea is included in that. So what's the first question then, going back from last week, that when we finish worship, remember, uh, and I'll explain more of this uh, in upcoming messages, but I believe that the worship service in particular, our worship service, is the morning worship service. And so as we leave, even this morning, what was the first question as we got into our cars uh, beyond, did you forget to turn the crockpot off or something like that? Um, a lot of times in our circles, it's, what did you get out of the service today? But hopefully this morning as you left, it was how was God pleased today? What did God get out of the service today? That should be our most important emphasis. And a definition that I found very helpful from Pastor Gary Reamers. I got to have dinner with him Friday, by the way. It was a real um, a nice time with him as one of my mentors. And he's the one, one of the men that really got me thinking about biblical worship. And a definition that he gave is worship is the process of declaring by whatever means God ordains that the Lord is full of glory. It's to be all about God. 
In fact, worship is so important that the Bible also speaks to the styles of how we worship, that our styles of worship should be ultimately pleasing to God. And so we're going to be looking tonight at pleasing God in our worship styles. So let's just read Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, then we'll have a word of prayer. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Lord, let us show, let Village Chapel be known as a church that shows its love of you by submitting to the worship that pleases you. Lord, I know this is a very misunderstood topic, and there are sincere people that think that they're worshiping, worshiping you in a right way. But Lord, if we've not sought your will and sought what pleases you, this commandment is clear. It is a form of even showing hatred toward you because we've not considered what pleases you as we worship you. And so it is all about you. We recognize that and we pray as we look at principles about, about worship styles, that we would be even more um, motivated to make sure that what we do in every aspect of our service gives you honor and glory. And Lord, we need your help for that, and we pray for that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to have pleasing, we want to please God, excuse me, in our worship styles. And first of all, we need to seek to know what worship styles that God rejects. And thankfully, he makes that clear from a principial standpoint. We need to seek to know what worship brings his warning. And this is certainly the case in this commandment that we just read. Now, there's a misunderstanding many times about this commandment. Some people look at this, they see the Ten Commandments, which um, almost every grade school child memorizes one of the first things they memorize and they can recite it and many times they're still misunderstanding what is the first commandment simply thou shalt have no other gods before me what does that mean god is saying here no other gods before me in my presence no nothing else that would take priority over me that you would give worship to that would be more important to you than me that's not allowed that's a commandment and we understand that we always have to examine ourselves and our lives to make sure that we're following that, because we all know that there can be, we can allow things into our lives, sometimes subtly, that come, become more important than God. And right worship is making God first. But then we get to the second commandment, and many times people think, well, he's just almost kind of repeating the first commandment. And again, we read here, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow themselves thyself down to them nor serve them. And it almost sounds like he's just kind of expanding more of an explanation of the first commandment. So is this really another commandment? Well, it is. And there is a different emphasis that is important about how 
we worship. The second commandment, God focuses on how worship should be conducted. And he warns about types or styles of worship that do not honor him. Honoring him, remember, is the whole purpose of worship. And what we do needs to reflect that. Let's give a little bit of background here. Where had the children of Israel recently come from? Where they've been delivered from? The land of Egypt, right? The land of Egypt, um, the people in Egypt from the Pharaoh on down, were not a one God worshiping people. They had many gods, many false gods. They were all false gods, but they had many of them. It's amazing the amount of gods they had, actually. They had um, a god even for the Nile, and they had gods for the harvest and the sun and the moon. If you've ever studied this, you could make a long list. There was a lot of gods and a lot of ways that they honored those gods through images that they would make. They would um, put, actually, the Nile as representative of the god of the Nile, in all of these things, this was the way they worshiped. And so when you are God's people, but you've been in captivity and been under that influence of worship, guess what's going to seem normal to you? That type of worship where you actually um, take images and they represent that God that you're worshiping. You're worshiping multiple gods. And so God's people had been under that influence for many years. Did you ever wonder, isn't it strange? Ever think about this? Why did the children of Israel choose a golden calf to worship God? Well, from what we can tell them from my study, uh, that was the way that they chose to worship their God as a representative of God. God wasn't available to them because Moses wasn't there. And so they fell back on what they'd always done, what made sense to them. It, we look at that and say, why in the world would you make a golden calf and bow down and worship at that? When God has just given you the Ten Commandments, this, that happened afterwards, and made it clear because it made sense to them. It doesn't make sense to us. A calf is a, is a cow is a powerful animal, a powerful um, uh, cattle, uh, farm animal. And they looked at it and they saw power and they ascribed that power to their deity. So it represented that power. But the whole point that I'm trying to make here is to them, it made sense. It's what they did. And God is then calling them to worship that didn't necessarily fit their framework or make sense to them that they weren't allowed to fashion an image or anything that resembled a false god or represented him as the true God. Well, it's still worship to God. Yes, but it's not done in the way that he prescribes. He doesn't want us making images and praying to those images and bowing down to those images as if they're him because God is so much bigger than an image that we can make. And it, it is blasphemous to him, really. And he says, verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Representations of false gods, or even Yahweh himself, were not allowed. And the reason was, is that God, and he talks about himself being jealous here. Normally, when we see that word and we hear that word, we think that's a bad thing. We're not supposed to be jealous. So how can God be jealous? 
what God is talking about here is because of his holiness and his perfection, he is, he is the only one that's allowed to be jealous. But truly, what he's saying here is that he expects an ex- exclusivity of devotion from his people in his relationship with us is that we worship him exclusively. And when we don't do that, he has a holy jealousy for us and he will not stand by while we disregard him or worship him in a way that he has not prescribed. Even how we conduct our worship is important to God and he's jealous over it because he's jealous of us as his people and he wants us to worship him in the correct way whether that even makes sense to us all the time or not. One of the things that we need to understand in this then is um, when it comes to worship styles, it's not primarily even about what makes logical sense to us, but it's primarily about what God expects from us in the principles and commandments of worship from his word. Those that desire to worship there in their own way. And this is, I think it's surprising to us. Sometimes we skip over this because part of the warning here is the punishment that will take place if we don't follow this commandment and get ready. This, this is harsh. This is almost hard for us to comprehend in its um, gravity. Um, in its It's how long, how far this. So let's read the end of verse five. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. What is the third and the fourth generation? You have the original, you have the, the individual people. You have their sons. The third generation is the grandchildren. The fourth generation is the great-grandchildren. And God is saying here, it's almost hard, it, it seems harsh to us, and yet God is saying, this is how important right worship is to me, that if you don't do it right, if your style even doesn't please me, it will have consequences for even your great-grandchildren. That ought to be sobering to us. Why would God do that? It's not because he's an unmerciful, angry, stern God, but he's saying here it's that important. That's why it's this important, because what, what is one of the most important things to us or should be to us is our legacy, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And that's why God says, I know they're important to you. Worship's important to me. Worship me in the right way or it will have consequences upon your family and your generations. Why? That last phrase that surprises us, of them that hate me. That's a strong statement, but what is God saying here? If you don't worship in the way that I've called you to worship, you're in actuality showing hatred toward me. And one that hates God or is showing hatred toward him will have to suffer the consequences of that. It's a stern, sobering warning about doing worship our own way, that we must do it God's way. 
Well, that's hard to make specific application for. And we have to be careful about that. If one is experiencing the judgment of God for this particular sin and not worshiping him in the way that he has called us to worship him in our worship styles and in our focus on him, we're not necessarily supposed to look at somebody else's life and say, I knew it. That's the judgment of God. That's why that's happening in their family. That's why that's happening to their grandkids. No, that's not our prerogative. That is between God and the individual. If one is not worshiping in a way that God has prescribed, he will make it clear to that person and he will give them opportunity to repent and to change. And we're going to see that here in just a few minutes. But if they won't, they will know, they'll see the consequences. And it's hard then to give specifics of what that looks like. All I can say is when a person disobeys God in this way, I'm talking about it's hard to point out the consequences that happen with their children and their grandchildren. God will make it clear to them. But we do have a, um, a story in God's word in number 16, turn to that passage where we have demonstrated God's discipline for wrong worship. And this is sobering. We need to seek to know what worship brings his warning and seek to know what worship brings his discipline and avoid it. Now, we don't have time to go through this whole story tonight in detail. And so um, I would encourage you, if you've not read through this and studied this, number 16, this is the uh, narrative of Korah and his companions rebelling against Moses and Aaron's authority. And it all is tied up in this issue of worship and how they wanted to worship versus how God had told them to worship. And as you probably remember, there were devastating consequences for the choice that these men made. Here's a man named Korah. Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. He was, of a, he was a respected Levitic descendant of the tribe of Levi who he and these other men that are mentioned here were all given important duties in worship service to Yahweh. They were actually, the text says, we'll see this in a minute, they were respected for the role that they played in the worship of God. They had great privileges that he and his companions had been given, but folks, it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more in their worship than what God expected from them. God had commanded. They wanted more authority. For whatever reason, they wanted Moses and Aaron's job. They wanted to uh, lead worship. And it might have been, this is recently after the Israelites um, in faith rejected God's promise of the promised land, if you remember all of that, and God had to punish them. And this comes on the heels of that. And maybe Korah and these other men said, you know, who's Moses anyway to tell us what to do? We don't want to go wandering around in the wilderness. And God has said we're all holy. In actuality, it's a grave um, dis disruption or distortion of where the people were spiritually. They were at one of their lowest points spiritually, talking about them being holy. They were not following God, as Korah and his companions make clear here. But they wanted the authority that God had only given Moses and Aaron and the priests. They wanted to worship that provided them more glory 
than they had rather than obey God and give him glory. 16 verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izar, and it goes on through to list that. I described that already. He took men and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. Folks, this wasn't any small rebellion. This was a good sized rebellion. And then famous in the congregation, men of renown. You know what this tells me? These men already had respect. God had already given them honor in their positions, but it wasn't enough. And folks, when God gives you honor, he doesn't have to give us any honor for what we do for him. But when we serve him faithfully and there's that recognition or that honor, be satisfied with that. Don't be trying to seek more honor for yourself. From the pastor on down, be satisfied with the honor that God gives you. They were respected. They were men of renown. And yet that wasn't enough. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. Well, actually, they're at one of the spiritual lulls in their history. It's not true. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You realize what they're saying here? They're saying, they're accusing Moses and Aaron of taking more honor upon themselves than they deserved. They're accusing, think about this, the Bible says, describes him this way, they're actually accusing the meekest man on the face of the earth of desiring more glory and taking more onto himself, taking too much honor to himself. And what is the supposed arrogant man? What is his immediate response? Humility. Shows us where Moses is in all this. His reputation is being distorted here. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And we don't have time to get into all this. But he immediately gave a solution that had to do with worship uh, before the Lord and that the Lord would decide um, who was to have the authority or really remind the people of who had the authority, but at the end of verse 7, he gives the reality of the situation. He says, you take too much upon you, too much upon you, Korah, and you other men, you sons of Levi. In actuality, they wanted to bring more glory and honor to themselves in worship rather than honor God. The way that they wanted to conduct worship to take authority over Moses and Aaron, God had said, don't do it. And they said, but we want to do it anyway. And there's consequences for that. Moses warns them, you are the ones that are taking glory upon yourself rather than giving it to God. God gave them wonderful opportunities to serve him. It's not enough. They want to worship in their own way, their own style with them in authority. And if you've read this before, we don't have time again. We'll go to the, the end of the chapter here. But what happens in the end? God has to bring awful, severe punishment to Korah and the others and their families because they demand worship according to their own thinking and desires. And let's look toward the end there. Um, verse 28, and Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. Here, here's where I show that the Lord has given me this position and this authority, for I have not done them of my own mind. I did not seek after my own glory. I didn't seek after this. 
Moses is saying. Unlike you guys, <laughs> I didn't seek after this. And that's true, isn't it? Did Moses, um, when, when he met, when he talked with God at the burning bush, did he come up with the idea to lead the people of Israel? No, he tried to talk God out of it, which was very foolish, by the way. Moses didn't seek this position like these men. And he said, if these men then die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, something new, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. An awe-inspiring, terrible judgment. If this happens, it will be clear whose side God is on and whose worship he accepts. And you folks know the end. This is a terrible consequence here. Verse 31, it came to pass as he made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. And they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. Folks, if it had just been Korah and the men, we might understand. Also, from the narrative, we understand that it was his family, children, even infants involved in this. A terrible, terrible consequence because these men chose their own way, demanded worship according to their own thinking and desires, and God had to deal with them. We have had at times in our family, situations where we've had children that have demanded their own way, where we make it clear, no, this is what we want done, when we want done. And they have, they, as children with sin in their lives do many times, um, they have all kinds of creative ways to go their own way. Whether it's just delay what mom and dad have said to do, act like we haven't heard it, forget um, or make it known that they don't agree with that. Does that thing, those types of things happen in a pastor's home? Yeah, it does. All of these different ways that children make it clear, I don't want to do it your way. And you all know that as a parent, that grieves us, but it has to be dealt with because there are consequences for children who are allowed to go their own way all throughout life. The Bible is clear on that, right? that has to be dealt with. It's even more ugly when we see adults that are always demanding their own way. And they have never submitted themselves to this principle, even Christians. No, I want to do that in the church service because I like it. I want that particular form of music. Or I want to worship God in this way. I think it would be honoring to him and it'd be creative and, and all of these things. And yet... Those individuals, at the same time, have not sought the Lord to see what he thinks about it. God will make it clear to us through his word and through our consciences as a church how he wants us to worship him and what he's pleased with. And we must not demand our own way. So as we look at these principles soberly, seeing the effects, God takes worship seriously, doesn't he? 
He does expect us to worship him in a right way. And he gives us these warnings to remind us to follow him. I would like to show you, though, that in the midst of this awful story, the mercy and grace of God in the midst of that terrible judgment. Yes, that did happen to Korah and many of his children. But as you might remember, when you go to the Psalms, there are some songs that have the author. It says the sons of who? Of Korah. What does that tell us? That God did allow some of his children to survive by his grace and mercy. And his descendants then, in the way that Korah refused, his descendants said, you know what? We're going to learn from that. We're going to worship God the way he wants us to worship him. And we have their psalms as a testimony of that. God's grace and mercy still abounds to those who see that they have sinned in this way, and even to their children. Let me just read to you another passage here. Just turn quickly to Numbers 14. The same book that has this terrible story of the end of Korah and those that followed his wrong way of worship also has this wonderful message of grace. Numbers 14, verse 18, the Moses is reminding the people, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generations. There's that terrible warning about correction and discipline, even to the great-grandchildren, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt unto now, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This isn't a thing that is set in stone. Probably all of us can think of ways that we have disobeyed this commandment and worshiped God in some form or fashion in a way that did not please him. Does that mean, if we take this literally, that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are already doomed to suffer? No. Moses says here, that will happen. That's why you need to seek God's forgiveness. And God says, I will gladly pardon. I'm long-suffering. I have great mercy so that your children don't have to suffer. Both we can turn from that wrong pattern at any time and say, God... I want to worship you, and I want to do it your way, the way you want. I want to please you, and the blessings are still there, and our children don't have to go through that. Our grandchildren and great-grandchildren don't have to go through this curse, but we have to turn because God says at the end, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, and they need to commit to giving me glory in the way that I say gives me glory. We can turn and repent and escape the consequences. Of wrong, of wrong worship. Secondly, we need to seek to know what worship styles God is pleased with. Here's the positive aspect of this. Just go back to Exodus 20 here. <clears throat> Exodus 20 and verse 6. When we will commit to worshiping God in the way that he calls us to worship and the style, following his principles, what does he do? Verse 6, this wonderful promise and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Really, in context, that means thousands of generations 
Pastor Emers pointed out this, this once, and um, I believe it's the case that if you research thousands of generations since the creation of the world until today, folks, we haven't even reached the capacity of thousands of generations yet. There's not been enough people on the earth to reach the full fulfillment of the blessings that God is promising here. We haven't even had thousands of generations in the world yet. And then this goes really, and we're going to see this in um, one more passage that we were in last week in Genesis, that this has eternal aspects to the blessing as well. But God promises he will make known what pleases him when we ask him in our worship styles. He wants us to know. He doesn't want us to go through the discipline of wrong worship that he has to give us. Because remember, when we don't seek to please him, it shows a form of hatred to him. It may not feel that way, but that's what his word says. Those that love him, that want to worship him the way that he wants to be worshipped, God will bless a thousand generations. And eternity will see the blessings for that individual. He will bless what pleases him. Turn one more time to Genesis 22. We were there last week, and I want to focus on the blessings again that Abraham received. Verse 15 of Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. And he said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hath not withheld thy son, thine only son. And remember in the context last week of worship, Abraham said he was going to worship, to bow down, to humble himself before God. And in that context, God says, you have obeyed me in a way I ask you to worship that admittedly was unique. Aren't you thankful that God never asked someone to worship this way again until he sent his own son? He's not going to call us to do this today. But it was a way that Abraham didn't understand, and yet Abraham was willing to worship him in that way anyway. And now the blessings. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And here at the end is a focus on what would be good for Abraham's extended family, because he was willing to worship God in the right way. What does it mean that the seed shall possess the gates of his enemies? The gate. Okay, we think of a white picket fence sometimes in a gate with a little latch or whatever. That's not at all what we should think. If you remember from our study of David and the cities and the city government, the town governments at this time, where did government, where did um, governing take place in at the city gate? Was where the town council would meet and make decisions. It was the seat of government. Well, what does that have to do with this promise? Well, let's plug that in. And thy seed, thy generations, thy Uh, family shall possess the gates of his enemies. That means that they will have authority. They will sit in the seat of government over their enemies. His children would have authority over all their enemies. Now, how long does that last? Well, he doesn't give an end to that, right? 
Um, it just says that this will happen and it's a future thing. Folks, the best way to understand this is that this has an eternal aspect to it, that Abraham's seed would have authority over their enemies. What um, future kingdom is coming where the Lord will allow us to rule and reign with him and have authority over our enemies in a true way? The millennial kingdom. And then beyond that, the eternal kingdom. His descendants will have eternal benefits because one man in faith chose to worship God in the right way. That ought to impact us and realize that we really do want to worship according to God's way and seek God's way in our church here at Village Chapel because the blessings are eternal. They're worth it. So God literally, he warns us of promoting our own styles of worship apart from his approval. It actually reflects hatred toward him. But those who worship God in his way will find eternal blessing. So it's not hard, is it? What's the point? We must commit to worship God in the way that he desires, in the worship styles that he wants us to do. Everything about our, our worship should reflect um, that he is pleased with it and that it gives him glory. And we need to seek his face and ask him for help to do that. And he will gladly show us and he will make it clear. Lord, thank you. A sobering warning tonight. And yet grace and mercy when we turn and commit ourselves to worshiping you in a right way. Lord, help us to do that. We, can, we, we admit we can get distracted by the things of the world that we like and request and desire those things without many times asking you what you think. Help us not to do that. Help us to always in our worship, in, uh, when we worship you together as a church family, specifically Sunday morning, that everything that we do from our singing, from our hearts, to our prayer, to the study of your word, that it's pleasing to you that we may experience blessing. And then in our daily worship, worship you in a way that pleases you as well. My prayer is that each one here will experience the blessings and their family and their generations before them as they choose to obey you in this all-important area of worship. And now as we finish up and have this, this meeting, may we also reflect worship of you and love for you as we deal with the practical aspects of of the church ministry. Let it all be pleasing to you, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.